Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, March 13th, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, I Am a Bride of Christ, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. Even if you and I believe If we don't obey the Lord, it's very easy for you to become a slave of whatever it is you give yourself to. It's possible to be a believer in Jesus Christ and struggle with selfishness. I mean, you live in a home, right? You've seen it. Or bitterness, or pride, or lust, or materialism, or worry, or fear, or approval. Anything you serve other than Jesus Christ, anything you give yourself to other than Jesus Christ will not deliver what you think it will deliver. It will deceive you. It will fail you. It will disappoint you. Slavery to sin does not lead to life. It leads to shame. On the other hand, being a slave of God is I keep growing I I can actually become who God intended for me to be. That's the best. I can finally live in a sense of satisfaction if I just become who God wants me to be. I was thinking um, just this morning that um, about the subject of inclination, right? And, And to put it in short, right? People, mankind makes their decisions in life, their choices in life based upon inclination and disposition. So inclination is, uh, I think the best example of that is, if you imagine uh, one of God's great creatures, uh, a horse, and this horse is giving birth to its colt, and this horse, unlike my kids, is gonna do a free fall of four feet to the ground. I don't think any of my kids could have pulled that off. But yet, nonetheless, that horse, by its natural inclination, is going to stand and walk. Also something we people don't have the ability to do. What we all have the ability to do is sin, right? An infant is quick to learn that, hey, wait a second, I've been fed, I've been changed, I feel pretty good right at this moment, but I'd really be nice if those nice old people would come and hold me. I think I'll start crying. There is a natural inclination within humanity to sin. No one has to teach that. No one had to come up with that and say, hey, let me, let me help you on, so that you can understand how to cheat on your taxes. No, you already knew how to do that. There's a natural inclination. And that natural inclination is selfishness. It's self-serving. I think one of the fun things I get to do in counseling is people come to me and say, I want to talk to you about my husband. He's, um, he's a bit of a narcissist. Great, so are you. Everyone's a narcissist. Because everyone is selfish, everyone is self-centered. Just as Bob was just saying to us uh, in that last week quote, we are self-serving, we are selfish. But there's a reason why we are that way. No one had to teach you that. In fact, this is in fact, I'd make the case that it is the law of God that is written upon your heart. Because Adam was given a simple command at the creation order of Adam. And that was a real simple command of God, be perfect And if you are perfect, you will live with me for all eternity. When he failed, we failed. 
When Christ died, we died. When Christ rose, we rose for those who have faith in him. As we talked in weeks past, we talked about being of Adam or of Christ. We are either of that sinful nature or that desire for legalism. We default towards legalism. And maybe not in every circumstance of life. You know, for instance, I just did my taxes begrudgingly this week, but I did my taxes and I follow them very legalistically. Speed limits, not so much. (laughs) See, the problem is, is that I look at this posted speed limit, it says 40 miles per hour, but I think in my mind 60 is reasonable. And as long as I change the law in my own mind, I find myself perfectly fulfilling it and obeying it every single day. This you-do-you culture, this, this youthful ignorance of thinking that we can just be whatever we want, that we can make whatever rule or law that we want, and that makes us righteous. That's not what God is saying here. I think of our identity. Years ago, Jill and I went through premarital counseling. And this lovely couple that invested time into us, I remember when they first taught me this, it was this. He says, listen, you have no idea how selfish a human being you are until you actually get married. Like, wow, that's a lot to look forward to. (laughs) And then he taps it off by saying, and you have no idea how selfish a couple you are until you have children. This isn't looking promising. I would add this just based upon the counseling that I do around here. You have no idea how much your identity is in your spouse until you lose your spouse. Much of our identity comes from our marriage, comes from our relationship with our spouse. For me, for many people, right, I I, I am just known as Jill's husband, not Pastor Jeff. I remember uh, years ago when I was still working in corporate America and still actually had money, right? I was Jill, and she's here, so I have to soften it from what I did at the first service, but <laughs> she loved to shop at Nordstrom's. So much so, and I, would, I, I rarely ever would darken the door of the place, right? And in fact, going to the mall was a task for me. It's just like, oh, man, Really? There's going to be people. I know that doesn't sound right for a pastor to say, is there going to be people? But I mean, Nordstrom, right? I remember one Christmas, we got this card. You know, everyone sends their family pictures, their family stories, and all those different things. I'm staring at this picture, and I'm like, I don't know these people. I finally, Jill comes home, and I'm like, hey, who are these people? Do I know them? She says, oh, yeah, that's my personal shopper at Nordstrom. (laughs) God, did we buy them that boat that they're on? (laughs) But now that we don't have that kind of money, there's no Nordstrom's and there's no Christmas cart. I remember one time going to Nordstrom, right? I didn't want to go in the place, but there was great parking there and you go through it to get to the other places in the mall. So I walk into Nordstrom and I'm walking with my four daughters, right? And they're all toe-headed and blonde and they're walking like ducklings behind me. No one knows me at this place, but I walk in, I'm like 50 feet in and they come walking up to me. You must be Mr. Stevens. I'm like, oh my God, how did you know that? Well, I recognize the kids and they're Jill's, so you must be Mr. Stevens. 
our identity. We default towards this very legalistic mindset, this law of God that is written on our hearts. It's our default. And we keep wanting to try and fulfill a certain identity. But the most influence in our life, in our identity, actually comes from ourselves. Paul David Tripp uh, wrote this. He says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. You see, human beings are always assigning to themselves some kind of identity. There's only two places. I want you to hear me on this. There's only two places where you're going to get your identity from. Either you're getting your identity vertically in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, or you're getting your relationship horizontally through people and influences of the world. And your battle within is that you're trying desperately to live in those two worlds. And brothers and sisters, if you're of Christ, you cannot. Our identity in Christ is key for defining who we are and therefore what we do. I've said this in the past, right? Being free from the law, right? We've been set free somehow does not mean that you're free to obey or disobey. But it is, in fact, something that you're going to do. And the question is, is will you receive that identity vertically or will you receive that identity horizontally? Will you pursue the fleshly desires or will you surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit? You're not free from the law to do anything that you want. It means, as Paul's gonna explain here, that you're in union or married to Christ. Paul is gonna show that we are no longer married to the law, that a death has taken place and that we are now joined to Jesus Christ so that we might bear fruit for God. But it's gonna raise the question in our minds, how does being set free from the law make me free in my servitude to Christ? Am I really free? Or am I just in a different relationship? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship and adore you, we come to you now as your servants, enslaved to your gospel, enslaved to you. Fill us now to understand the truth that is in your word, to grow in your grace and a greater knowledge of your son. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So turn with me, if you would, to Romans 7, verse 1. Paul here is going to start off, right? This is coming on the heels, right, of what we looked at last week. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he's going to say this. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Paul's making this first general statement to make a distinction of the jurisdiction of the law. Where does the law have authority? And he's going to say that it is the law that is in place for as long as one lives. 
I'm gonna break this into three categories today. The first one is gonna be the disadvantage of the law, and then the last two are gonna be the advantage of the gospel. And we'll look at them in contrast of each other. But point one is the disadvantage of the law. And the disadvantage is that it has a beginning, but it also has an end. It has a beginning and an end. So we have to go through the law. In fact, we looked at in weeks past the Edemic covenant, this contract that God made with Adam where he said, if you perfectly fulfill the law, if you perfectly obey, you will have eternal life with me forever. We know how that ended up. But the law itself is only binding on this present life. And the law ceases to have any effect upon us upon death. This is a distinction in the legal method of salvation, right? This performance-based election or this performance-based obedience. I like to call it oftentimes Nike Christianity, the just do it mindset. Had Bible study, check. Went to and had small quiet time. Went to small group, check, check. Read God's word, check. It's not a list of rules. There is no contemporary or modern day New Testament Leviticus. This is precisely what he's talking against here. Whereas the law says this, do this and you will live for eternity. The gospel says, arise and walk, and you will therefore do. Live, now do. The gospel itself drives us towards holiness, like it should be within our earthly marriages. Your marriage, contrary to popular belief, is not about your happiness. It is all about your holiness as a couple. Your pursuit of a loving God your surrender that mutually submits. Paul says this in Ephesians 5.21. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Jesus. Mutual submission because you are both created equally in the image of God is what called you to. But in that imagery is the pursuit of holiness, which is a fancy way of saying not your holiness, but the pursuit of God's holiness, his holiness. God encourages us to live holy lives because grace, because grace has been given. He said that in Romans 6, 11, he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why do we have to consider ourselves dead? Because it needs death to get rid of the law. If I'm dead to self, then I'm alive in Christ. The scriptures encourage believers to live holy lives. And it is because of this grace. There is a English Puritan from the 17th century, Walter, Mar- Walter Marshall. Marshall cautions believers about blindly rushing out and trying to live holy lives. Before they understand the place of holy living in the order of salvation. He says this, he says, if you are a wise Christian, you will seek holiness of life only in the order God has given. He says, oh, how I wish that people would see the place that holy living fits into the mystery of salvation. 
You see, it's through holiness and obedience that they're necessary as a part of one's salvation. However, we can't pursue these in an improper order. Unless believers learn to first seek obedience in the gospel-driven manner, all of our attempts to perfectly fulfill law will fail. This is why Augustine said, I cannot not sin. My fleshly desires, if I'm yielding to those, if I'm trying to do it my way, in my order, my sequence, I will fail. And I will not produce the fruit of the Spirit, I will produce the rotten fruit of me. Marshall goes on to say this, he says, if you rush out and try to keep the law without having Christ's righteousness and Christ's spirit in you, you will have both the wind and the tide against you. Your guilty conscience, your dead, corrupt nature will frustrate and defeat all your attempts to love and serve this God. The only thing you will do in this case is stir up your sinful lusts your sinful desires, and you will not stir yourself up to true obedience. At best, you will attain the hypocritical performance of a slave. The pursuit of holiness does not precede the gift of faith. Faith must be given first. All the blessings of salvation, justification, sanctification, adoption are what empowers a believer to pursue holiness, the holiness of God. Paul is not giving us here in this next context a comprehensive teaching about divorce and remarriage. He's gonna use it as an analogy to drive his point home. The law has jurisdiction over the living, not over the dead. If a person dies, he is no longer under the law. Look at it in verses two and three, Romans seven, two and three, he says, for a married woman is bound to the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. That contract is over. Remember, we took those vows, till death do we part. Accordingly, he says, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. And no, brothers and sisters, you can't kill them. (laughs) But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Because you died with Christ, you are no longer under the law that was given to Adam. In short, he unites you to Christ through faith. I liken this to, as Jesus did, to a branch and a vine. In John 15, four and five, Christ said this. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If I took a branch off of an orange tree and I just hang it there, and it's not connected to the whole of the tree, there will be no new fruit. And the fruit that is on it will wither and die. It has to be connected to God. But the first thing that takes place is a cleansing from our dead works. 
All those things that we did before Christ, before he was in our life, these things that we did to try and earn favor with God that meant nothing, that were in fact a polluted or a deserted fruit. Hebrews 9.14 reminds us, it says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve, to serve the living God. That has to take place first. He makes you to live in the spirit, and as Paul's gonna say in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the spirit, if I've been made alive by the Holy Spirit indwelling me, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Keep up, because the spirit's doing things. This is the gospel order. The gospel, as Paul told us in Romans 1.16, is the power of God even unto salvation. In the gospel, God first makes you alive and then he enables you to obey. The gospel says you live, therefore you do. You were dead and you could do nothing because you were apart from him. Paul is showing a comparison to the law. The gospel gives this far better order of things in our pursuit of holiness, his holiness. It's through the gospel that believers have a great number of advantages. We're gonna look at two. And two of the benefits for holy living. The first one, or the first advantage is that he knows that we know the love God has given us. That agape love. That unconditional, unmerited, premeditated love of God. Not something we've earned, not something we can aspire to, not something we can ever do or earn or say or be about, but it is that love that is only from God. We love because he first loved us. The first advantage that the believer has in the gospel for pursuing a holy life is that he understands and he knows the love that God has made or manifested for him. Believers, just as much as unbelievers, are bound to obey all of God's moral law. It's not the nine commandments, it's the 10 commandments. The moral law of God has been put upon us and we are to obey it. The question is how? The difference lies in the fact that believers are in a union with Christ and the Holy Spirit is working from the vine through the branches to bear fruit. The gospel itself then is the root of all true obedience to God. Romans 1.5 tells us that. Romans 16.26 tells us that. It also tells us that the gospel is the means the Holy Spirit uses to produce obedience and faith and to sustain your faith. He who created that good work will complete that work. 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25 tells us this. It's why the gospel is not rules. It's not Levitical, New Testament Levitical law or practical steps or here is uh, seven habits of highly effective Christians. There's none of this. The focus is not to be on any law. The central focus is to be on Christ in the believer's daily life. So Paul's gonna remind us in verse four. In verse four, look at it. He says, likewise, my brothers, 
You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. He died, you died. Why? So that you may belong to another. He's taking you out of your old marriage to Adam and he's putting you into a new marriage to Christ. To him who has been raised from the dead in order, why? That we may bear fruit for God. That's gonna be the fruit of God, not the fruit of you. See, verse four applies his point that we saw in his illustration. He's showing that we died to the law through the death of Christ and that we are now remarried to Christ so that we might bear fruit. He's gonna reemphasize this with a negative and a positive in verses five and six. In verse five, he says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, Brendan's gonna spend some time on that next week, but aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to bear fruit for what? For death. The wages of sin is death. The fruit that we earned apart from the true vine was death. Look at it in the positive. Verse six, he says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, the law, our legalism, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're not trying to fulfill the Edemic covenant. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He perfected it and then he imputed it, gave it to you and to me for those whom believe. But there's a third advantage or the, the second advantage in point three Point three in the second advantage is that we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This incredible gift that comes from God, his spirit indwelling in us, right? This is what enables the pursuit of his holiness is that we have this indwelling presence. It is the Holy Spirit who gives believers the desire and the power to obey, The Holy Spirit empowers believers to bring forth fruit. The fruit that he's talking about here is Galatians 5, 22 through 23, right? Those nine characteristics of one fruit, the fruit of spirit, not the fruit of you or me. But remember, a lot of this is about our own individual identity because the main person you spend all your time talking to is self. It's not that there's a little voice of an angel and a demon on on one side or the other talking to you. These orphan thoughts that come to us so naturally are in fact our own inclination because we're selfish by nature. Mankind is is hardwired for for law keeping, not for gospel trusting. You see, we keep wanting that Levitical law, that thing that tells me that this is right and this is acceptable and this is okay and that's what makes me a good person. There couldn't be anything further from the truth. The only thing that is true is that you and me are sinners saved by the grace of God. That's the truth. I am in need of a savior because not only can I not fix what Adam did, I can't fix what I did. I am in a place of desperate dependence, the place where God wants me the most. The place where God wants me is prostrate, on my knees, worshiping him, begging of him, looking to him, 
focused exclusively on him, that he's my vision. He's the thing that I want. He's the thing that I must glorify. He's the thing who set his affection upon me before the foundation of the world and has set me free from the bondage of the law. Jesus Christ, my savior, my Lord, my master. He is everything. But there's this legal desire in us. It's present in even the most mature saint. Even believers who are united in Christ continue to struggle with their legal desires to please God. When God is begging you to trust him, he is most pleased with you when you are most trusting of him. How easily It is for the Christian to run back to the broken covenant of Adam. Look at what I did. Doesn't that make me a great person? No. It makes you a sinner. And possibly you're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Have you placed your faith in the person of Jesus Christ? Because just as it is justification, your salvation based upon grace through faith alone, it is your sanctification by God's grace through faith alone. His work upon the cross, his work in perfection and fulfillment of the law. We want so badly to go back to just tell me I'm a good person. As the source of our acceptance before God. How much of our lives, our work, our parenting is all based upon performance-based love? Oh, I'm so guilty of this. This is the woodshed visit for me. You know what? If you just get an A in this class, then I'll let you go on that trip. You know what? If you would just obey and do your chores, I'll make sure that I buy you a car. Oh, you know, if you just do this, I'll give you this. If you do this, I'll do that. All these things are performance-based. It's not grace. All four of my daughters have pushed my outer limits on obedience. And sadly, I've stared them in the face at times and said, how much grace do I have to show you before you will obey? That's not grace. That's condemnation. How do I put my hope and my trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ that regardless of whatever stupid decision they're gonna do today, tomorrow, or next week has me looking at them fattening the calf, getting a ring for their finger, and a robe on their back so that when the prodigal returns, we're gonna throw a party because my child who was dead is now alive in Jesus Christ. This is what God's calling us to in the gospel. Believers must in fact pursue the holiness. They must obey God's law. However, their pursuit must be according to the gospel, not legal or performance-based means. Believers must know and continually be reminded that they are no longer under the curse of God's law. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Right, there is no curse in the gospel In the gospel, the curse has been completely removed if we would but yield to his Holy Spirit. 
It's through the gospel, the believer on account of Christ's imputed righteousness is declared to be in right standing with God from the very beginning of his Christian life. Believers who were once dead in our trespasses and sins are now dead to the law by virtue of their union with Christ in order for what? That we might bear fruit to him. That's Romans 7, 4. Paul is illustrating his point by showing that the woman is bound to her husband as long as they live. My question is this, does God empower you to obey the law? Or does God fulfill the law and then credit it to your account? Bob touched on it last week in Romans 6, 20 through 22. Look at it. It says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were free to obey. You had the freedom to go do that anytime, but you didn't. Look at what you did, verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you now are ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The wages of sin is death. But now, verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law so that we would no longer be bound by it, but that we would come from being of Adam to now being of Christ, a new groom, and we are a new bride, his church. Christ became the end of the law by virtue of what he did on earth through his sinless life, his sacrifice on the cross. He did this so that the law no longer has any bearing over us because its demands have been fully met by the Lord Jesus Christ because the fruit we get from him leads to sanctification and eternal life. That fruit, one fruit, nine characteristics. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Look at what he says. And against such things, these nine characteristics, there is no law. Praise the Lord because none of us make it if there is. That love, that agape love, it's a perfect love that only God can give. It's a love for God and others. Love God, love people is the result of receiving God's perfect love. It's a joy, right? It's often translated delight or joy. Right? It's often seen in the Bible with gladness. It's the realization of God's favor and grace in one's life. Biblical joy is happiness that is not dependent on our circumstances. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various forms of trials because he's in control. Or peace, shalom. The peace, right, in the, in the Greek, it's, it's erin, right? The biblical concept of peace, right, is inclusive of a life without conflict. You know why I don't have any conflict in my life? Not because I don't have any conflict in my life. 
but because I know who's in charge, who's in control. You see, this biblical joy is not dependent upon our circumstances, and the peace of God will surpass all understanding if I would just think on him. Patience, forbearance. Oh, how I need brothers and sisters to be gentle and forbearing with one another, to be patient with one another. The Holy Spirit empowers believers to withstand challenging situations with perseverance and endurance. It just keeps coming. But I'm going to be patient and wait upon the Lord. Kindness conveys the meaning of moral goodness, integrity, and usefulness, and gentleness. Goodness means uprightness of heart and life, goodness and kindness. Goodness is seen in our actions. This word relates to not only being good, but doing good things. Faithfulness. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Faithfulness is a character trait that combines both dependability and trust based on our confidence in God's eternal faithfulness. Gentleness. I love how the King James calls it. The King James calls it meekness. Meekness does not identify the weak in us. More precisely, it identifies the strong who have been placed in a position of weakness where they persevere without ever giving up. Self-control, the ability to control one's body and its sensual appetites and desire. Man, for many of you, I appreciate you coming and saying, Jeff, you look great. Let me tell you, as I approach here right now, on this diet, I am close to crossing over 100 pounds in weight loss. Before you clap, here's the difficulty of it. It has nothing to do with the diet. It's all about my idolatry. My idolatry for pleasure, my idolatry for comfort. I seek food because I want it, I like it, and it tastes wonderful. And I sometimes seek it for comfort rather than seeking Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit because I think that will somehow fill me temporarily with a peace, and it does not. Every single time I go to that refrigerator light, it's not the gospel I'm seeking. I need to open it up and I need to do as Paul commanded me when I'm rejoicing in all things and I'm not anxious for anything. I gotta write down what's the lie. I gotta write down what's the truth. I have to ask myself in Philippians 4, what's honorable about that truth? What's just about that truth? What's pure about that truth? What's lovely about that truth? What's commendable about that truth? If there's anything excellent in these things, think on these. And if I practice these things, the peace of God will be with me. It's amazing. It works every single time. If I will just put my fix, my vision upon Christ. See, because between these fruit of the Spirit, the nine characteristics of one fruit against such things, there is no law. None. As I call the worship team and the prayer team in, in hold to be up here, I want you to know, walk away with this. Christ frees us from the law to which we were bound, but not to do as we please. We're freed from the law so that we can be enslaved to God in the newness of spirit. And being a slave to his righteousness is in fact true freedom. 
But look at how he closes in verse six. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, the law itself, so that we serve, we serve, we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. As I mentioned at the outset, the being free from the law does not mean that we're free to disobey the moral commands of scripture. I mention it again because it's often misunderstood, it's often ignored, right? But the word serve here in 7.6 is the same Greek word for enslaved. We are enslaved to God. He bought you with a price. He gave his life so that we would trust in him. You see, whether you realize it or not, you are in an unending conversation with yourself. And the things you say about you are so formative in the way you live. You're constantly talking to yourself about your identity, your spirituality, your functionality, your emotionality, your mentality, your personality, and all your relationships of influence. You and I are constantly preaching to ourselves some kind of gospel. You either preach to yourself an anti-gospel of your own self-righteousness, your own power, your own wisdom, or you're preaching to yourself the true gospel of deep spiritual need and the sufficiency of his grace. You're either getting your identity vertically or you're getting it horizontally. Look to Jesus and live. Look to Christ. You see, when you preach the anti-gospel of aloneness and inability, or you're gonna preach the true gospel of his presence, his provision, and the power of an ever-present Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit within you. The law which only produced sin and death because of Adam's imputation of unrighteousness. But now, through our union with Christ, we have died to the law and we are now married, married to his righteousness. Our identity is in him. Aren't you Jesus Christ, bride? Your entire identity. You see, it's in this relationship, this relationship with your, with your Christ that you don't have to be afraid of what's in your heart, the sinful thoughts that you have. You don't have to be fearful of being discovered a sinner because there's nothing in you that could ever be exposed that hasn't been covered by the precious blood of Christ. Where do you find your identity? Vertically or horizontally? Are you trying to live in both worlds, a foot in both camps, because your idol of approval says that, ah, oh, they're not gonna like me if I tell them about Jesus? The creator of the heaven and the earth not only loves you, he likes you, and you don't need all the other people's approval because you've already been approved and accepted by the most high God. Draw your identity from there. Recognize that you are a bride of Christ. And in this marriage, in this union with Christ, there is no death do we ever part. Nothing can separate you from this love. The law of God says, do this and live. But the gospel of Christ says, live 
Arise and walk, and you will do this. Trust in God. Man, there are things that are thrown to us at times. This song that we're about to sing is the worship team's bringing this uh, classic old hymn. And in this hymn, right, I want to tell you the history of this because it started with a poem. And the poem dates all the way back to the 5th century. In 433 AD, a king in Ireland decreed that on Easter morning there would be no candles, no flames, no fire to represent the risen Jesus Christ. He wanted all focus to be on his majesty, not on the king of kings. But early that morning, one man, a young man, hiked to the highest possible hill he could find. And in rebellion to the king, he lit a bonfire so big that all could see. That when they rose from their sleep on that Easter morning, they would see the flame of hope. That they would see the beacon of truth. That they would rebel against the king, but there would be no king but King Jesus. To put our faith and our trust so focused upon him that he and he alone would be our vision. It was 1,500 years later in 1905 that a young lady pinned the poem that had been passed down for 1,500 years in Ireland. This poem that was written about a man named St. Patrick who chose to pursue Christ over obedience to his king, to represent Christ as a light in a dark world. She penned these words, Be thou my vision, my presence, my life. I in thee dwelling, and I in thee one. High King of heaven. You see, Patrick's identity was in Christ. He wanted no other king but King Jesus. He wanted to represent him because that's who he was. This coming Thursday, I'm not against green beer. But I want you to remember your identity is in Christ and Christ alone. St. Patrick was trying to get across to us that Christ is our everything. He's our delight. He's our glory. My wife is probably one of the most beautiful people in my life that I've ever met. And people oftentimes come to me and say, man, I love it when you preach. I just love it when I see my wife. She has my crown on this earth. But let's look to Jesus and live. Let's worship a holy God and let's be satisfied in him by his grace, by his mercy, by his fulfillment of a law we could have never kept so that we could be unified with him for all eternity where no death will ever separate us again. Amen? What a beautiful song to fix our eyes so focused upon Christ that he would be our vision, our everything. That our identity, our everything would come from him. Our motivation would be Christ. Our decision-making would be the Bible. And our behavior would be gospel. That we would point people to the beauty and the loveliness of Christ in hopes that the Spirit would awaken their deadness and unite them with Christ for all eternity. Amen.